I mean, I think the thing I've always tried to take really seriously as a, as a game designer is that I'm, I'm taking away slices of somebody's life. That a human being, a mortal human being, is choosing to spend 10 minutes here or 10 minutes there, an hour here or five hours there with the thing that I've made. And what am I going to give them back in exchange for those slices of life? Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Desire Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, Adam Saltzman is talking with Margaret Robertson, game director at PlayDots. Margaret recently shipped Dots & Co. and is known for her pioneering work at Hide & Seek and as editor-in-chief at Edge magazine. My name is Margaret Robertson. Um, I'm currently a game director at a company called Dots. Uh, we make mobile phone puzzle games. Um, the first one, get this, is called Dots. Um, and the second one is called Two Dots. Uh, and I just led the project to produce the third game, which is called Not Three Dots. That was maybe the first creative decision on, on that project was that um, it just felt like we were going to end up in Star Trek Nine territory if we weren't careful. So we, we, we decided Two Dots was enough. And so the, the new game that, that we just released um, two weeks ago is called Dots & Co. Uh, and so that's what I'm up to currently. But my kind of path through games has been a little strange and meandering. So I got started um, a good many years ago now, actually, as a, as a games writer, as a games journalist. Um, so I, you can probably tell that I'm, that I'm not from the US. I'm, I'm from the UK originally. Uh, and so I got started there writing for a magazine called Edge, uh, that a lot of folks still remember fondly, um, and kind of came in on the ground floor there as a staff writer, but but stuck it out long enough to to end up editor in chief of that magazine. Um, and so for sort of four or five years, uh, I had this kind of incredible opportunity to travel the world, visit all the major studios, meet a ton of incredibly talented and celebrated game directors, see all kinds of projects at all stages of development. It was kind of the best game-making education you could ask for to some extent. Um, and so when I left off doing that, uh, I kind of spent a year or two um, working as a consultant, coming in on some kind of big AAA games uh, to give them feedback and help them troubleshoot uh, or kind of triage uh, any moments they were having where they you know, weren't quite sure how best to proceed with the project. Um, and then I kind of split over a little bit to more uh, of the public sector. Uh, so I did a lot of work with arts organizations and educational uh, institutions. Um, so working on, this is kind of really as the, the concept of educational gaming was really taking off. So I, I worked, I didn't work on um, many sort of pure curriculum games, so sort of simple, well, not simple, but but kind of more straightforward fact learning uh, mm. projects, but a lot of um, more left field um projects to do with sexual health or money management or um, mental illness or 
uh, kind of um, crucial things for for kids and young adults to know, but things that aren't necessarily covered in in um, mainstream school education. Um, and that was a chance to work with a bunch of small indies. I loved that. Um, but I was still kind of all the way through this process. Kind of, I'd always been at one remove of actually making the games themselves. I'd been writing about them, or I'd been consulting on them, or I'd been um, helping to commission them. But I, I'd never been the person delivering them. And it, I was increasingly conscious of the fact that I, at some point, I was going to have to put my money where my mouth was. Um, and that kind of led to coming on board in the very early days of a, a company called Hide and Seek. Um, and I worked with its founder, uh, guy called Alex Fleetwood, to kind of build that company out as a really as kind of an experimental game studio. So we did digital work, but also real world work, um, a lot of physical based games or games that kind of crossed over between those two elements. Um, we made projects in collaboration with big arts companies, in collaborations with whole cities. Um, we worked a lot with um, Soul and TV to make uh, tie experiences uh, for movies. Uh, we did crazy parlor games on your iPhone, all kinds of things. Um, and that was a wonderful, wonderful uh, period. In the middle of all of that, I moved to the US uh, around the home seat US office um, for a couple of years. We put that company to bed about two and a half years ago. Uh, we loved the work that we'd done there, but the way we configured just didn't really make sense for how the, the market was moving. Um, and so after a little while of doing my own thing, I found my way to Dots. And it was just kind of one of those moments where um, I walked in and didn't want to leave, and they very kindly let me stay. And so what started out as... Um, just a friendly cup of coffee turned into a job. And it's going to be two years quite soon, but a year and a half later, here I am having just released a new game for them. So that is my answer to the very unfair question. <laughs> what games have you made? Yeah, do you, it's, a, it's, it's a shame. I had to do the whole thing in two minutes. It's a shame you haven't uh, had an interesting career with lots of things to talk about. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, there, there was a, a moment when you asked me to go through that. It's I, there's things I forget, like I didn't. Um, yeah, we'll discover them as we talk, I'm sure. But but yeah, when you work on a project, you can't believe that you would ever forget a single thing about it. And what I now discover is that if you do enough of them, not only can you forget the details, it sometimes flips your mind. Flips your mind that you did the the entire thing. Yes, yes. I've only had like one or two of those, but every once in a while, I'll like be going through a resume or get an email from someone or something. And I'm like. <gasps> Wait, I worked on that. That's yeah, a weird that that's happened. a weird feeling. That was a thing. All right. First I want to ask about hide and seek if that's cool. Sure. The project I was most exposed to that you guys worked on was the board game remix. Mm. Um which do you wanna explain for listeners what that sure. was? Sure. In fact, it was originally codenamed the board name Repair Kit. That's what we were going to call it to, to begin with. That It was born out of a, a conversation we were having in the, the studio. It was it was maybe sort of something like September or October. We were, it was just getting that time in the year when people are starting to put their plans in place for where they're going to spend the holidays. Mm-hmm. And we were all moaning about that kind of the, the purgatory that you experience as a, as a game designer or indeed, frankly, a fan of modern good board games mm. that you you go home for Christmas and at some point somebody's going to want to play Monopoly or Cluedo or just some of the worst board games 
ever made. I know Monopoly has its plans, and, and I know there are defenses for why it's better than many people think. But the sure. way it gets played in most households over, over most winter holidays is miserable. Um, and so we were just, you know, complaining to each other about how, um, you know, how, how much this was going to stink. And it just turned into kind of spitballing about how, how would we fix these things? What would kind of, what would be our, um, uh, you know, the, the way of, of making these situations a little bit more bearable? And that just, it was one of those just lovely lightning in a bottle moment where within about an hour, we realized this, this really was a thing that we could do, um, that we would pick um, the, the most common board games. And I think we identified those in the end as being Monopoly, Trivial Proceeds, Scrabble and Clue. Mm. Because the board game repair kit idea is it's sometimes literally a problem. You know, it's, it's not just Monopoly is arguably not very well designed, but there's a real problem that emerges when you're trying to play Trivial Pursuit. But the Trivial the, the trivia Pursuit box is 20 years old, and all of the eight-year-olds that you're trying to play with have just never heard of any of the things that are mentioned in the cards, or vice versa, or it's brand new, and, you know, your great-uncle Fernando can't possibly answer any of those questions. Half the time with Monopoly, bits are missing or things aren't there. So in some cases, we were thinking about this in terms of literally how do you, you know, how do you how do you have fun if somebody finds the Scrabble box and the tiles are there but the board is missing? What do you do now? <laughs> and then solving problems like what do you do if the game's a four-player game and there's five of you? How do you, how do you solve that problem? What do you do when there's a family together and you do all want to play together but one of you is three years old? And mm. You want to, you know, you you want to be able to include them somehow. You all want to have fun together. Is there any, is, is, you know, is there an insane idea that you can somehow make um, a, a board game that adults can meaningfully interact with that in some way is also going to hold the attention of a, of a smaller child? Um, so we just sat down to kind of figure out. We did a, it was a super intensive game design brainstorming phase, and we pulled in some outside help from kind of long-standing hide and see collaborators uh, and we decided what we thought we'd do was we would it was September so we just thought that we would invent all these games play test them write them put them into a book put them into a set of cards put them into a digital app and have it on sale six weeks before Christmas that's what we thought would be a good idea so we had we had maybe a six something like a six week process um to get these ideas together and then figure out how on earth we could turn them into a thing that we hoped might be a kind of good, you know, little Christmas present or a fun thing to have in your phone um, over the holidays. And we basically did it. We basically pulled it off. It was the first project we did that, that was entirely self-funded. So all of our work up until that point had been um, kind of commissioned by arts organizations or broadcasters or filmmakers. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we had we were bootstrapped. We had no... We had no money. We were just, you know, <laughs> frantically trying to make cool games for people we liked and, and, and try and keep money coming in. Yeah, so this um, was like, so you guys had about six weeks, and in the six weeks or so, you invented, like, board games from a parallel dimension or something, it they're, feels like. They're pretty much. There's, a, there's, a, there's so much good stuff. And, and a lot of this came out of Hide A lot of it did come out of, of, of an external collaborator, so... Um, Kevin Davis, I remember, uh, he's a, a story game creator in his own right, was a big contributor, and, and, and there's others if you check the, the credits for the project. So there's my favourites are probably there's an amazing there's an amazing sobering hack of Monopoly called Divorce, uh, which is a two player game 
and you initially play collaboratively to, so it's not, you don't sort of quite play it like Monopoly, but it uses some of the same pieces, you kind of get started the same way. You play together to amass property, but as you play, there's a card buried in the deck, and when you turn over that card, you, insta- you, you, you trigger, you instigate the divorce. <laughs> and now you're competing for the resources that you gathered in the first half of the game. Um, mm. And you're, it, then it turns into a kind of um, trading and arguing game that, that um, you know, you're arguing over pieces of property, but you're also arguing over things like the, the, um, the, the objects, the player objects, the top hat and the, uh, all the rest of it. And the game finishes ultimately when one player secures the dog, uh, the little Scotty dog um, <laughs> player piece, because that kind of symbol, symbolizes the, the ultimate triumph of the dog. It's it's actually it's a pretty robust little piece of game design. It's it's kind of less trivial than it sounds, but it's you know it's we over the course of Heinz's career we we definitely did play around with the kind of idea of game poems of games that absolutely did function as games. They're playable, they're winnable if that's appropriate in that structure, mm. but they're really designed more to be. Um, you know, just little pieces that are resonant of an idea or give you an opportunity to think about things in a, in a new way. And that was definitely, I, I remember vividly playing it with, a, I played it with a very good friend who uh, herself had been divorced some years ago. So this wasn't, it wasn't um, crass for us to be playing this thing together. Mm-hmm. But it was still surprisingly moving and illuminating. Um, kind of the, the conversation that we had around the game as we were playing it is not one that we would have had in any other context. So that one was kind of at the, at the poetic end of our uh, work. Um, yeah. There's a super cute joke about London taxis. There's a game called The Knowledge, which is a mashup of Trivial Pursuit and Monopoly. Um, so you play your way around the Monopoly board, but as you play the way around the Monopoly board, you have to answer trivial pursuit questions in order to secure some of this. I should apologize. Some of this is from memory. This project was mm-hmm. eight years ago or something now, so I'm, oh. I'm not going to get all the details right. Um, but as you play your way around the Monopoly board, you ask these uh, trivia questions. And, and so this is inspired by this strange reality that in London, to be a taxi driver, you have to pass a verbal exam in uh, how to get from any street to any other street. So you have to go in and sit an exam and the, the taxi driver will say, you know, um, Hatton Wall to Waterloo Bridge. And you have to you have to turn by turn, tell your examiner the right way to make that journey. It's very, very hard. Yeah. Um, and the, the test is, is known colloquially as the knowledge. This is the knowledge of mm-hmm. London. And the other thing cab drivers are famous for is, is having an opinion on everything and being repositories of enormous, strange sets of facts. I mean, you know, their 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 lives um, revolve around having conversations with people on the back of their taxis and then reading the newspaper for the rest of their day. And so they know all of this crazy stuff. <laughs> so this was our little tribute to the London taxi drivers um, as they make their way around the London streets in the... I guess not not everyone who's listening may know that... that the UK has its own monopoly board, so our monopoly board is set in London, not in New York. So, oh. having driving driving around our London monopoly boards, answering trivial pursuit questions, feels very uniquely London. So that one was hmm. part, that was one that, that was a game that started as a pun. Probably hmm. like thirty percent of hide and seek's games started as puns, but that, <laughs> that may not be a, a 
exaggeration. And then the, one of the most amazing and sophisticated is uh, a reversioning of Clue um, as a zombie survival horror game. Yes. So that's a version where you you all play initially collaboratively. Um, you add dozens of little markers, often with pennies, um, as zombies outside the, the house in Clue. Um, and what you're trying to do is uh, collaborate to move around the house to recover all of the weapons which you have including the candlestick and the rope and, and all the murder weapons but these of course are essential ways to protect yourself from the zombies that are encroaching and the zombies encroach is a little simple rule set that governs their movements they kind of move programmatically every turn in the game if the zombies successfully kill a player then that player takes over the role of a zombie and so as the game goes on the Zombies change from being this kind of massed army of but of very stupid, predictable forces gradually closing in on the mansion to this smarter, real combative force um, of mm. zombies controlled by players who are kind of really going for you. And uh, the, the win condition is I think you have to you have to make it to the front door with the gun. Is there a gun in clue? Is there a pistol? Uh, you have to make it to the front door with a pistol. Maybe there used to be. Maybe that's the kind of thing that... I grew up with a pistol, and now there's something less inappropriate. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it's that kind of thing. And there was a, there was about twenty or thirty of them, yeah. and then some of them are just like there is a super good, very simple war game that more than four of you can play with Scrabble tiles. So yes. you know, it's after dinner. There's six of you there. Somebody suggests Scrabble. Here's a, just a simple way that you can that you can play a similar style of game that you throw away the board and you just distribute the tiles and you make that work. Yeah. Um, and those kind of things they are just really practical. Hey, it would be fun to play a game. It's that you know it's that thing. Maybe if you go and you go and you stay somewhere for a weekend. Maybe if you you know you're um, going to hire an Airbnb or go away with some you know go away and stay in a parent's friend's house or something. And there's always that rainy day, and there's always that one board game stuffed under the stairs somewhere. Yeah, and it's never, it's never, it's never a board game you choose to play. <laughs> so this is this is designed to be your repair kit, so your your remix kit to fix all of that. So it was an utter, it was a it was a crazy grueling project because we gave ourselves such a timeline, but it was an absolute joy. We're, we we loved every minute of that thing. I was really struck by the um, when I was reading through all the sort of. Uh, variants and alternatives and mashups. The Clue Zombie Siege rule set was is really great, but also almost like territorial. Like it's really actually hard for me to look at a Clue board and the Clue murder weapons and not just go like, how is this not what what it was used for originally? Like the the rules and the theme are so tight. Well, I think you know we're 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 definitely not the first people who've who've had these conversations and have come at this problem. I mean, a lot of what we talked about when we were starting out was um, how often people have house rules. In fact, I think an early idea for the project was we were just going to collect house rules. Mm. You know, what's the, what's the way you make monopoly work in your house? Oh, you give everybody $1,000 up front. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. That would help. Oh, no, the way you play Scrabble, you take all the blank tiles out, you know, whatever whatever your rule would be. Yeah. Um, and then it just kind of snowballs. So, yeah, I'm 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 sure we're we're not the, the first group of people to to play around with some of these. And you're right. How can you look at uh, those um, those you know that that setup in in Clue and, and not start to spin ideas? Fun <laughs> fun tiny trivia fact. 
Um, in Britain, we call it Cluedo, with a D-O at the end. I don't know why, but we think it's called Cluedo. <laughs> Is it, does it say that on so the I'm box? I'm always proud of myself when I remember to call it Clue. Yeah. Does it say Cluedo on the box? Yep, 100%. Weird. Yeah, mystery. One of those things you never question because you grew up with it. But I would, I'd be, when we were trying to pitch this project to Americans, and we'd be saying, oh, it works with all the board games you've got to have. You know, to remember Pluto. Strange. You guys are You're talking about playing the Monopoly variant called Divorce uh, and playing with mm. someone who had been divorced before and that being kind of a, mm. uh, maybe a more <laughs> intense version of Monopoly than you usually get to play. And when... You were doing sort of experimental, educational type um, game work, I believe. Am, am I remembering correctly that one of your projects was sort of about like death or grief or something? It was about both of those things, um, and a lot more. Yeah, this was this was it was a great privilege to work on this project, um, which I think unfortunately now is is no longer accessible. It's it's fallen off the internet. It was a, a, a sister project for an extraordinary documentary that you can still see um, called Dreams of a Life. Uh, and I, I highly recommend it if you can. It used to be on Netflix. You could probably find it somewhere. Hmm. Um, it was a documentary about the story of, and, and, you know, no matter how many times I tell the story, it gets me every time. And it, and it, it just is... Um, devastatingly sad the story of the discovery of a woman's body in an apartment in london and this is maybe 10 years ago now it's that that sort of time frame Mm. um she was discovered um finally because debt collectors had come to claim money that was owed to the electricity bill and when they came into the apartment they found um the body of a woman, um, and it became apparent as investigations went on that the, the woman had uh, died around about three years previously, so her body had been lying there for three years. The television was still on. Um, this was a perfectly normal apartment building um, in the middle of London. Um, no one had noticed that she died. Um, and when they were finally able to identify her, I think they determined that when she died, she was 36 years old, I think. Um, so this young woman living alone had died and nobody had noticed. Her neighbours hadn't noticed. It seemed her family hadn't noticed. We as a society hadn't noticed. It was big, big news in the UK for a day or two in the way that these things are. Mm. But then no, so there's no big scandal surfaced. There didn't seem to have been any kind of um, sexy story to tell around it. And the news cycle moved on. Um, but a, a, a filmmaker called Carol Morley had encountered the story and, and just, could, just couldn't move on from it. Just was left with too many questions. How, how can this happen? Um, and so she said about she dedicated the next, I think, five years of her life to to, to making this film to try and understand who this woman had been um, and and how this event had come to pass. Hmm. And uh, we got asked to make a game. <laughs> okay, because as uh, I feel like the, the perfect pitfall for doing game design or trying to do game design about a serious topic or a serious subject is that 
we want to, we have a tendency, I think, to like strive to communicate ideas mechanically and interactively because that's the strength of the medium in which we work. And yet the reduction of nuanced and multifaceted human experience into some kind of parsable game mechanic frequently I've struggled. I always feel like I'm trivializing somehow somebody else's experience. I mean, I I think working on that project was either the moment when I understood game design best or at least. It it was a very long road for us to try and figure out what we were going to do. There was a lot of early interest around could we... Could we use technology to do something interesting? That, that, that it, 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 we felt like a really important thing that was being examined in this really important concept that was being examined in this story in this film was was out of connectedness, was of what what um, connects you to to the people around you. And so we spent a long time trying to get our heads around: is that could we do a cool thing with Facebook? Could we do a cool thing where we, you know? scrape some of that information to show you interesting things about your life or give you a sense of your degree of connectedness or let you um, discover ways in which you could um, change how connected you were. And all of those lead you to, to grizzly places pretty quickly and that, that you, as a game designer of a game, have absolutely no business trying to tell somebody how connected they should or shouldn't be. I mean, we, we ended up having very, very heart-wrenching and fundamental conversations in the studio about if we were trying to encourage, because you're exactly right about as a game designer, what you reach for is a is a mechanistic expression of these systems. You try and dig down and find the bones of the thing and say, how can I build a dynamic system where we're operating on one element of it makes a change to another element of it? And it was very hard to form any kind of agreement in terms of what that skeleton is. You've, you've got every right to live your life completely alone if you want to. Most people don't, but. Some people yeah. do, and there's nothing wrong with that. And we didn't want to build a system that somehow stigmatized that choice. And this thing just kept dissolving out from under us. And then another, a weird thing I discovered, or I felt that I discovered, and I didn't find a way to design around, was what we wanted to build was a place where people could contemplate their own lives with profound honesty. That was a that felt like a real straightforward goal of the project. This was. You can't hear the, the 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 woman who died was called Joyce. You can't hear Joyce's story without reflecting on your own life, without thinking, well, how how long? I mean, it, it, it's the first thing everybody thinks is, well, how could that happen? That could never happen to me. Could that happen to me? How long could I possibly lie dead for? I mean, even even that was um, <laughs> even that was. We talked to so many people around us, and we had really interesting conversations. Um, you know, I was saying, I remember saying at the time, at the time I lived alone, I was traveling a lot for work and, and I was talking to a woman, um, a couple of women about this question. And I said, you know, I, I do think it's plausible that I could lie dead for certainly three days, may, maybe three weeks, because people would assume that I was traveling or, you know, I didn't really know my neighbors. It was definitely one of those things. And another woman said, um, you know, that she was a bit busier and thought that, you know, she definitely, she couldn't, she wouldn't even, you know, she'd be found within within days and probably even within three hours. <laughs> but the other woman who had two, I think she had two twins under three, said, 
I imagine being able to lie undisturbed for three hours. <laughs> oh, oh, she could think. Because the life that she was dealing with was one of just a happy life, but a life of just constant interaction and constant connectedness was to get three hours on her own was the first thing that she thought about in the middle of this this otherwise very kind of dark conversation. So you you the more we talked about it, the more we realized that that we didn't want to make a game that was preachy or prescriptive in terms of any of these things. And so we wanted to make a space where people could be really honest about what they wanted to do, about what was important to them. And I kept running into this problem where games turn you into a liar. They turn you into a cheat. They make you second guess everything. A game, even a, a even a very um, artful, poetic, open-ended game tells you how oh, you're going to do a thing and then another thing's going to happen based on the thing that you do. And you very, very quickly get into the kind of mindset where you're second guessing what kind of answer you should give or choice you should make or a thing that you should do because you know it's going to have some kind of ongoing effect. And the second the second that creeps in, people stop being honest. And I just, I, I, I would try a thing and then find that that problem had, it occurred and I'd tear it up and I'd start again, I'd tear it up and start again. And we had, we had pages and pages of really interesting work of things based on um, labyrinths and dungeons that were really, really, uh, on you know, in, in paper and principle were, were really, I think pretty solid and strong pieces of design, but they just didn't, they just didn't engender that kind of interaction. And so we took a really deep breath and set all that aside. And, and Alex, actually my, my partner, uh, founder, just said, look, I just keep coming back to this same vision, which is just a, a window, just a window looking out over a London night sky but there's writing on the window and that writing changes. And I don't know what that is and I don't know how that works, but I just keep seeing that thing. And so I threw everything else out and stuck with that. And we ended up making this project that I wouldn't call a game. Um, it's, a, it's a conversation that you have with this writing that appears on the window um, that just asks you questions about yourself and kind of raises questions about life and leads you through this discourse. We talked a lot about catechisms, about these kind of repeated discussion, this repeated kind of question and answer patterns that, that you find in Catholicism, but in, in other forms in other religions, where the kind of repetition of these familiar questions kind of leads you to discover something new in, in your answers and yourself as your mood changes and time passes and all the rest of it. So we then, we, we collaborated with two completely extraordinary women, uh, Mayo Kennedy, the, the uh, novelist and writer, um, and Lottie Davis, the photographer, and created this um, subtle, but I, but I think very effective piece where the, the, the writing on the window fades in and out quietly takes you through these kind of four chapters about love and friendship and ultimately about loss and death. Um, and as you're answering these questions very, very quietly in the background, the image that you're seeing through the window and indeed the details of the window itself change. And uh, over the course of you playing the game, more than a year passes um, through this window. So 
plants grow. Um, postcard is a postcard on the wall. Postcards age, dust gathers, plants die, um, snow falls, rain falls. This this whole year of time goes past, um, and that and that really ended up being the most the most emphatic thing I felt I could end up saying about this story is that. Um, is that the thing that I really learned maybe from Joyce's story is that time goes faster than you think and you don't always notice change. And that in the end, you should you should watch Carol's film if you can. In the end, there, there is more to learn about Joyce's story. She does do a beautiful job of kind of recreating what we lost when we lost this woman who none of us knew and none of us missed, but who, who is a lost nonetheless. Um, but there is no, there's no enormous tabloid revelation. There's no big story there. Just what, the impression that you're left with is that her life had many people in it. She was, she was loved. She had a, she was connected. But for all of those people, time passed faster than they realised, and things changed without them noticing that they changed. And what happened in the, as all, uh, you know, as that compounded for a whole bunch of different people, is that Joyce just slipped out of their lives. Um. And so that's, in the end, the thing that I tried to to build. And it, it, I think it's still, it's, I've never quite seen anything else like it. I think definitely this was kind of pre the twine explosion. So, mm. oh my God, the way we built it would make your head spin. <laughs> so much, so much JavaScript agony to get that thing to work to get all these pictures to fade in and out and everything to be readable in a thousand different browsers and oh my god it was a it was it was a tough one um but yeah i think it was kind of kind of early early days of, of maybe sort of a new generation of text-based interactive experiences um and the, the writing airplane's writing was, was it was beautiful and sharp and surprising and I my big regret really about the project other than the fact that you can't play it any longer is that I didn't and this happens often I find you may find the same it happens to me often at game design is that I, I didn't understand the game I was making until I'd made it mm. and then it's often too late to make the changes so that the thing I I only and I'm probably the only person who ever had this experience the thing that was truly powerful about that game was playing it. We were right about that catechism thing at the beginning was playing it again and again over a year of my life. So mm. I, I remember crying my eyes out that I was supposed to be proofreading it. It was right, right, right at the end of the project. And so it was, you know, I was on my own three o'clock in the morning in the off when I get this thing finished uh, but it was right at the end of the project, so I'd been I'd been playing these sequences for months and months and months and months, and I was going through it. And you know, you have to to click your way through the project. You have to, you know, make the choices and type things in and all the rest of it. And I just realised how much my answers had changed in the it wasn't quite a year, but in the in the seven or eight months since we had started working on it, and the things that had been true for me at the beginning of the year weren't true now, and, and the repetition. I think actually turned out to be a thing that unlocked something really magical in that I wish I, I 
you know, I would love to go back to it now and answer those questions again and see how my answers had changed. And it left me, I've never taken it anywhere, but it kind of left me with a, with a hunger to do a different kind of project that would very explicitly be about um, letting you see how your answers change to a set of questions or a set of ideas year after year after year, being able to, you know, I love the idea of, you know, being able to look back five, 10, 15 years ago to, to how you were answering these questions about, about friendship, about death, about love. Hmm. Um, so that one was, that one was a real special one. And I mean, and then not least because it, it had so many extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary experiences. We had to do all of that, photography, all of the photography for that time lapse was practical. We had a stunt cat that we hired to be the cat that appears in some of the some moments in the um, thing uh, where a cat comes in and out of scene. We had we had real taxidermied birds mm-hmm. to hop around on the window. Um, we had lots of sort of amazing resource drive up in the morning with real whole bits of tree in the back of her car to so that we could do the proper. You know, this tree could grow properly because we would gradually bring in more and more trees. That was it took us it took us three days to shoot more than a year of the passage of time with fake snow and rain sprinkles and all the rest of it. It was um, uh, grueling, even more. I, I, I was just spectating, and it was grueling enough for me, but utterly unforgettable. So that yeah, that whole project was was very special and 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 special. I think despite, I mean, Alex was a was a critical creative force and, 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 a, and a driving um, inspiration in terms of those those kind of initial themes. But but as we took it into production, it, by accident, but happy accident, it, it turned out to be an all-woman team huh. um, who was working directly on it. So we, we that, I realise as I say that, with a slightly thinking heart, that didn't include... Uh, our external programmer, but in terms of the the team that was working on it in house, mm. uh, producer, game designer, writer, photographer, um, was a was female, and I think there was something pretty special about getting to delve into that kind of territory with an all female group, particularly because um, the film was female led, and, and Joyce, of course. Um, I think we all related to Joyce in a different specific way than than the men involved in the project did. So that was that was all all added up to something pretty unrepeatable. I think that was was a, a once in a lifetime kind of thing. So the film was dreams of our life, and our project was dreams of your life. I think there is still the sort of sort of video elements of it around online, give you a little flavour of it. But unfortunately, the the main experience is gone. Hmm. Appropriately, you might say. Maybe that—that's the only. Maybe that's the right way for that story to end. <laughs> Nothing is forever. What did I? What did I tell you? What did I tell you? Time passes faster than you think, and things change without you realizing. Oh man, that sounds really intense. Uh, it was. It was. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah, it reminds me of so many weird things. It like it reminds me of how like we have a lot of automated rituals, but like since that project, I feel like all these things that sort of keep track of your life on your phone or your watch or whatever have kind of exploded, but they are somehow maybe more superficial or statistical or something and not the, the quantified self. Yeah. Yeah, I think there was there was something there was something really powerful about and we couldn't have done it without 
A.L. Kennedy. There was something powerful about this voice having a personality and a character and a stance hmm. um, that I think often the, the problem about, not a problem, but the, the thing that's often true about the apps that I've seen, in fact, in some cases, the apps that I've tried to design, are they tend to be deliberately neutral. Mm. Um, they ask you these very kind of benign, open-ended questions. Mm. Um, and then they're just a kind of repository for the stuff that you want to put in there. And I think... It, it's interesting. The, the, we, so as if it wasn't crazy enough to get asked to do the game for that film, even if we ended up not making a game quite... Then we got asked, get this, then we got asked to make a live action game of the digital game that we made. So they were, the, the film was featured at South by Southwest, and indeed our project was featured at South by Southwest, and South by said, would you be able to run a, you know, you guys do real world work, could you do a, a live project? And we said, yeah, sure, easy. <laughs> we can take this thing that is about this it's a 30 minute intensely introspective text based <laughs> digital thing yeah. and we'll, we'll bring that to South by which is just like 48,000 drunk people eating burgers in a you know gusher <laughs> maybe not quite a fair description of South by but I yeah it's not burgers it's, Dori it's Doritos um and so we turned it into a, like a cocktail party game called Will Anybody Miss You? Hmm. Uh, which was about um, trying to... Uh, it was about... Oh, it had lots of complicated elements because we got carried away. But at the heart of it was um, asking strangers questions and, ask, and kind of asking strangers increasingly dangerous questions, which were kind of leading up to... Would anyone miss you? Because conferences are super interesting spaces for this kind of stuff because everyone's away from home and everyone's either desperately missing their loved ones or secretly mm. hoping to hook up or both at the same time <laughs> or lonely because they know that they don't have anyone to go back to and they're not connecting with anyone at the conference or, you know, there's a whole bunch of kind of different intents. And then even just within the conference, you're going from this, the clamor of you're out there on the show floor and there's a million people and you're, if you're lucky, you're seeing a bunch of old friends and it's like a thousand percent social. And then you go back to a hotel room on your own, which is just this completely sterile, silent, empty, lonely box. And it's sort of an enormous relief, but at the same time is often a moment where you do, you do, you know, people do get maudlin in hotel rooms contemplating their lives and, and the, you know, the choices they made and all the rest of it. So we kind of wanted to tap into a little bit of that. So it was just an encouragement to the game kind of gave people permission to start playing with people. You're, you're in lining up for something or you're getting a drink at the bar somewhere. The game kind of gave people permission to start asking questions that they wouldn't, you know, everybody makes such boring, well, oh, what do you do? Oh, you work for those guys. Oh, do you remember it? Do you know this guy? I used to work with him. Oh, no. Those are the sci-fi conversations you have. And we wanted to give people a chance to have conversations with more meaning. And so it's, it's these very simple but powerful questions of, um, you know, will you show me a last photo you took on your phone? Or... Are you wearing or carrying something that somebody else gave you? And you just get amazing answers to that. You just suddenly find um, 
yeah, you find the most amazing things. And we, so the game started as a sticker sheet and kind of encouraged you to, to identify yourself as a part of the game with some stickers. And then you had a little app-driven mechanism for kind of asking people questions and recording their answers. And if you, if you kind of went through the whole process, there was a prize waiting for the end. And the prize was a photograph that, that, uh, Lottie Davis, the, the photographer from the, the main project had come with us and she brought her amazing vintage large format camera uh, mm. and we were going to do uh, l- live um, like giant uh, Polaroid portraits of anyone who finished the game. Mm. So you've got the location to come for the camera if you, if you finish the game. And when we, when you got there, we just gave you a chalkboard to hold and say, write a message to someone you love Hmm. on the chalkboard. And then we took the uh, thing and we, I mean, we, again, we, we laughed and cried our eyes out in the course of that thing, but like a bunch of people would, you know, would just write, you know, Hey, Paolo, missing you. See you soon. Yeah. And that was their thing. But for some people, it was messages to their kids. And for some people, they would, they would, they were just messages to their husbands or wives, but they were just hilarious, you know, just some little stupid domestic detail that they wanted to, you know, rub someone's nose in or make a joke about. There was a, a man who wrote a message to his... I mean, this was... Yeah, they still... He, he wrote he wrote a message that I didn't understand, and I went to chat to him afterwards, and, and, or I spit, and he started to cry... And this is a little weird because this is just a complete stranger and I'm standing in a gutter in um, Austin and I'm trying to comfort him the right amount. Like, you know, you're doing that kind of stranger thing of going, I want to be human and make sure you're, that you're okay. But I also, I understand that you don't know who I am. Yeah. And he, uh, he was, he had written a message to his mother who had been shot and killed by his father when he was about three. So she had been protecting the children from the father who was drunk and he had shot and killed her. And he had found in this moment, he said, I'd never, I never knew what to say to her. I never knew what to say to her. And now I said this, and this was kind of a moment when he said, and I don't, I, it was an it was an extraordinary moment. I don't I don't think for one moment the the power of the game had unlocked this thing in him. I think it was it was coincidence. It was clear that he had been working through all of these things for his whole life, and that we just we you know our orbits happened to intersect. There was just a moment when he was ready to say a thing, and here we were with the chalkboard, and and it just you know. So I don't I don't for one second want to overplay the 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 role that the game played in this. But again, it was just this, just this incredible discovery. If you, if you just give people an excuse to say something more revealing, they're often really glad to take it. And so I think that's that's what those apps often I think get wrong is they're just they're pretty they have to be pretty bland. And the 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 the, the starting point that that Carol Film gave us allowed us to be kind of much more provocative and intrusive in the, in the stuff that we asked. But then that meant that we had to be incredibly open-ended in the way that we received back 
the answer is that, that you, you can't plug answers like that into a game structure or certainly we didn't ever find a way to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I, I think, I think you have to know which, which end of that you're at. And, and I think that what you can't do is try and be both at once. I think you can't, um, you can't have it both ways. It's so weird that these projects, it seems like they, in some ways, they're not even that related except for this ability or uh, affordance in game design terms, I guess, of honesty from the participants or this, well, like... I mean, it's... Sorry, I interrupt you and I... No, 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 go ahead. I, it's weird because I said ages ago this risky thing about how, how games make you cheats and liars but you're always trying to xbox the system you're always trying to you're trying to be a player that's what that's what we it's what you create when you make a game is you create players you create people who are trying to play the system yeah. i mean i think that there's a very strong argument that games i think also this weird way i think simultaneously and meaningfully are also doing completely the opposite thing that a lot of what i i is a humans find hard about especially about multiplayer and social games is I find them far too exposing hmm. I don't like I, I, I am slightly ashamed to discover that the way I normally handle myself in the world is pretty like controlled and it's not it's not um, what's a good word for it like a, a bad word for it would be uh, kind of curated. I wish that word hadn't come to mind. But it's like you self-edit a lot, right? You In any situation that you go into, I'm trying to think, how, how can I make the situation go well for, for me and for the other people who are in it? You know, I want to, you know, here right now, on the phone with you, I'm like trying to think about good stories to tell and things that are going to yeah, be relevant to people I'm listening. Trying to, I'm, I'm trying to you know, do that process. I'm really like struck by, um, we had a weird, I... Uh, I hate to interrupt, but I had like this intensely, like this viscerally negative reaction to a party game. Sometime, maybe about a year ago, we were playing a bunch of different party games, and a lot of them are about bluffing uh, or mm. kind of like lying to your friends or trying to, right? And uh, we were playing a, a variety of them and enjoying a lot of them because they're often structured in such a way that you're given um, game pieces or information. And then you're given some time to sort of think of a good lie. And then you're given the opportunity to sort of try it out on your friends. And we were playing something. I wish I could remember the name of the game, but I, I just had this intensely negative reaction to it because it gave, it did not, I felt like it didn't give me enough time to be a good liar. Like the, the prep time was very short. Like you draw a card and it would be like, tell a lie about this thing you just did. And it was like devastating. Mm. I felt like so, I don't know, like conflicted and like upset. I think that the, the, the current trend for games about bluffing and lying is is really interesting. I don't, I don't think I wanted to it. be good at it. I don't think I wanted to excel at this game. I don't think I wanted all my friends yeah, to right? say, like, you know, <laughs> good job, you, I, you I, lie and we can't even tell. I mean, I, so I, I, Used to play a ton of werewolves. Mm. Um, I had a big werewolf um, craze with a bunch of wonderful friends 
had great experiences playing it. I have a whole other story to tell about the time that I interviewed the guy who, you know, so you know, it's a, it, it's effectively Andrew Plotkin's mod of Mafia. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And Mafia was invented by a Russian sociology professor who I once interviewed inside World of Warcraft. That's a whole other story. Um, uh, and I got to say, he. Well, I'm, I'm not going to say that. So I say the other thing I'm going to say about werewolves. It, it, it's fascinating. It's incredibly powerful. I frequently had a huge amount of fun playing it. But the more I played it, the more uneasy I got. And I remember really clearly um, playing it with a complete group of strangers. I was something like I was waiting to go into a show and it was delayed and so there was a, all of the audience was sitting outside, just sitting on the floor outside this theatre waiting to go in. And people were super bored and bored enough to be friendly and chatty. Hmm. And I got talking to to Australian sisters, I think, who were in London on vacation. And someone said, hey, we should play werewolves. Um, and so I said, sure. And so I ran a game of werewolves. And the, it came down to three people, the two sisters and somebody else. And one of the sisters effectively had the deciding vote. And she says, well, look, this is easy because... Diana, or whatever her sister's called, um, you know, I know her better than anyone in the world, and I know I know she can't lie to me, so she, I know she's a villager. And of course, Diana was a werewolf. <laughs> and I saw, I watched in this woman's eyes her, like, just the, her whole impression of her relationship with her sister shift. <laughs> This, this, you know, this woman had absolutely, honestly believed that her sister couldn't lie to her. That she, you know, that, that, I mean, I, you know, they were clearly very good friends. I mean, I, I think just kind of assumed that she wouldn't, but just kind of that she would know that that she, you know, and it was maybe a slightly foolish instinct to have had, but she just really saw that. And there was just there was a moment when I saw damage happen to this human being. <laughs> as she started to realize that this wasn't what she, things were in the way that she thought they were. And I guess a really hardline world fan would say, well, good, she had the scales torn from her eyes and she <laughs> has learned something important about how the world really works. But it just didn't feel like that. It just felt really sad. It just felt like this ugly suspicion had now been kind of forced into their relationship. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I the, the more I had experiences... Similar to that, the more I did start to get uneasy about why are we so psyched to play this game that's about proving that we're good at misleading each other, that proving that we're, you know, and I know um, poker has been excelling at this for years and and Werewolf is is kind of late on the scene. But yeah, I now, I steer clear of of that whole genre now, really. I think I kind of, I loved it at the time, but I had enough of it. And I'm not excited about proving how good a liar I am. I'm 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 in your camp, I think. <laughs> um, but part of that part of that is because hopefully it, there's a there's maybe a good moral instinct to say we shouldn't celebrate that so much. But some of it is 
fear of exposure and discovery that, of course, I'm a liar. Yeah, I don't intend to moralize it or anything. I don't want to lose my mojo. I don't want to reveal my tricks. I want to... I, I, I still need to be able to lie well when I need to lie. Mm. It's funny, but it's true. Mm. And so there is a thing about those games where there's a, there's a really strange, horrible context where half of why I don't like it is that I don't want to be a liar and half of why I think I don't like it is because I damn well do want to be a good liar, but just not right now. Yeah, well, like, what and if so they learn... Something... Like, what if people learn your good lie tricks? Then not only will you... The few things you had to tell a lie when you needed to will be right out the window. That's a, I think that's a, exactly part of the fear. Um, or the opposite for people to discover that you're a hopeless liar and that, that you know, they, they know that they can read you from here on in. So I think there's, there's definitely, there's all kinds of games that, that I'm, I know that I am reluctant to play out of weakness and cowardice that I don't, I don't like losing control. I don't like being put in a position where I, I don't have the luxury of doing that self-editing and that and that self-management. And I don't admire that in myself. I don't. I'm not proud of that. But I think I think there is a kind of you end up in this sort of um, kind of weird binary state in, when you're playing Ace. When on one level you are being the the game. The game theoretically gives you... The game says, hey, magic circle time for the next hour, the rules that matter are this. So they give you license to do whatever you want to do. So there is this kind of thing that turns you into a, a um, the lion-cheating version of yourself. But at the same time, the, the means that you use to pursue those choices are often much more exposed than they are in real life because you are under some artificial time pressure or you have limited resources or you're, you know, whatever you have to do, you kind of have nothing to hide behind. So I think they are at the same time. I think it's part of why we find them so compelling is that they're, they give you somewhere to hide and they reveal something essential about you at the same time. Um, and I think often when you're choosing what kind of games you like to play, you're choosing where you want to be on that spectrum. Maybe. I don't know. I just made that up. Does that sound smart? Um I buy it. I buy it. Um, I have like I'm I've I feel like I have a lot of I'm really comfortable if, you know, my ability to do math or to analyze a complex situation, like if that's called into question, if the game is a head to head test of uh of intelligence or analytical uh, strength, you know, if I lose at a game of chess, like I, uh, my ego is so thoroughly intact. Uh, you know, right. I'm just like, I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not, a, I, I, I lack both the breadth and the depth required to engage with this. And it doesn't make me very uncomfortable, but then there are these other things that do. And that like, to, it's, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's just a thing that, I don't know, maybe more games make more people more honest than they think. Like I can sure who I can sure tell who jerks are if I'm playing Street Fighter online. Right. I think that's a it's a it's a true thing. You don't you're you the, the niceties of of normal civilized life kind of get stripped away, and you because you are you're you know I am <laughs> I listen to a lot of Overwatch. 
<laughs> I live in a house that's very full of Overwatch, and I live in an office that's very full of Overwatch. <laughs> but do you know what? I, I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up for the purposes of school. I am, I am in a soundproof studio right now. I'm in the recording studio at work. It is soundproof, and I can hear people screaming while they play Overwatch <laughs> at the other end of the office. I can hear them through the soundproofing. Um, so, you know, it's it's literally life or death in there. And yeah, well, that's obviously I... not in any real sense, but yeah. you're, if you're a dad and there's someone on your, on your team who can resurrect you, you're screaming for that person to come get you because those are the stakes. That's just a real need that you have. It's the most it's important pretty... thing. Like in that time window, for that like 20 seconds of your life or 10 seconds of your life, it's the most important thing. Yeah, 100%. And, and therefore, the, the, the stuff that you're screaming is, 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 I think, pretty kind of real and honest and, and revealing. And I know, I definitely know people who, I, I used to, this is an old theory I had, it's still maybe a good one, is um, that it's, this is back in World of Warcraft days, but I used to say it's the best, World of Warcraft is the best first date. Um, because... It it forces you to away from those curated, edited ways of dealing with situations that, um, you know, if you're, I mean, both kind of in terms of how you handle yourself in the game, just are you, you know, if you're trying to, I mean, I know a first date is only a first date, but you're trying to get a flavor of what spending a lot more time with this person would feel like. Mm. And how well you communicate, how respectful you are, about about each other's access to loot, um, how effectively you decision make together in terms of where you're going to go next, um, how willing you are to adapt to each other's you know fighting styles and, and habits about um, yeah. getting into fights, how you spend your money um, in the game, or kind of what your habits are. You learn you learn a ton more about somebody in an hour of playing my with them, um, or a ton more about some kind of really more fundamental physical things than you might in an hour getting a drink in a bar where you're talking about, oh, how much do you like your job and when did, you know, where was the last vacation that you took and, and those kind of things. So I think, I think games do reveal a bunch of that really essential stuff. And then, you know, that's before you get into kind of more of the interpersonal dynamics that you might get um, if you're, uh, you know, if you're in a group um, in, in Overwatch or, or whatever else, you know, hearing how somebody deals with the other people in the party is going to give you a much better sense of who they are and, and how they relate to their friends and, and what those kind of relationships are like than almost anything else. I think that I think those are those are genuinely revealing uh, moments. So, yeah, I think I like single player games because they're a place where I can go and escape from all of that stuff. And I think people who like multiplayer games are people who really like bathing in a lot more of that um, open, honest revelation of um, hmm. people's more instinctive selves. There yeah. you go. Nobody's ever, nobody's ever um, described Overwatch in those terms before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had, think I, had a, I had a weird experience playing Street Fighter Online a few years ago where um, I... Uh, I played some fighting games or competitive games growing up, but I never, uh, and it took me a long time to figure out, but I was never really fully committing 
uh, out of a fear, like it's a, a safety mechanism, right? Like if I'm not trying my hardest or I at least tell myself I'm not trying my hardest and when I, and I, when I inevitably lose, because sometimes you lose right. in competitive games, then I won't have truly lost because I wasn't, you know, giving my all in the first place. And I actually played a lot of, I think I played half an hour of Street Fighter every day online against the randomest jerks in the world for like two years and just tried to, but it was like a, I don't, I don't want to say it was like an, an ascetic <laughs> uh, or or a, like a penance-seeking behavior or anything, but it was mm. in a lot of ways like a trying to counter or deal with this sort of personal tendency that felt limiting. It felt like it was limiting that I was afraid to, I was afraid enough of losing that I was sort of, af- God, that sounds super corny, <laughs> but like afraid mm-hmm. enough of losing that... I was happier to simply not play very seriously or very intently because that could be a cushion or something. And eventually it just was so, it was, it was so disappointing to know that there was, that was sort of limiting or cutting me off from enough experiences that I just sort of had to, had to discover a whole different attitude or a whole different way of playing competitive games where losing was fine and losing was a way of learning. And I say all this right. as a game designer whose my job is to fail all the time. That's, huh. that's my day job is to make mistakes all day long. It was a weird way of engaging with a you know game about punching people in the face. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> I, real failure is an is a understandable thing to want to avoid. Did you hear that at, uh, at Riot, uh, who make League of Legends, was an intensely competitive game? Everyone who works there plays. Uh, and I think you have to play in order to get hired or something. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And they track your account. And if you get flagged for toxic play, you get a personnel review and may get fired. Right. Because they found that people who are... It's almost like they're when they play the game, it's more clear who are the people who are capable of these sort of toxic social relationships in the first place. It's like they have a clearer, they use it like as a, a predictor indicator of workplace toxicity, right. uh, which isn't the craziest thing I've ever heard, but it's also like a little bit creepy. Like it's a little bit mind crimes or I don't know, <laughs> like psychically predicting something about it feels I, weird I don't, I don't know. I think, I think it's the opposite of... A much more old-fashioned thing that we've been doing for a year that for years that you would, you know, you would put on your resume, you know, the the external hobbies that you did, and you would kind of expect to be given a little bit of credit for things like, you know, or if you ran a local choir, or you, um, you know, were a scoutmaster, or you organised a mm. dog rescue mm. thing or something. People look at that and go, oh, well, this person is you know, um, organized and motivated and, and deals well with people and, you know, all of these other kind of secondary soft skills. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll give them a little bit of credit for that. And I think this is just saying the other thing, which is that, it okay, this isn't happening strictly within a work environment, but it's telling me something meaningful about this person in terms of how good they are at managing their temper or... Um, how patient and gener- how just how, how basically respectful and courteous they are to other people, and yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty comfortable about. I mean, particularly in that environment where it's it's the company's game. I mean, I think that's the other thing. This isn't like spyware on their computer. Yeah, yeah. checking out how they're behaving at another point. It's like no, this is your your 
quietly working the company right now, yeah, I think I I would feel pretty comfortable about saying I'm I'm definitely gonna flag the behaviour of somebody based on that. Mm, mm, mm. I'm trying to think if there's a if there's a corollary for the games that we make, but I don't think there is. <laughs> I think you can <laughs> you can, uh, you can grief anyone in uh, in dots. I don't think. <laughs> Uh, before we wrap up, so after after making all those super intense projects, you're at Dots now, and Dots and Co. just came out a couple weeks ago at the time of recording this. It's pretty relaxing. It's a pretty relaxing. Restorative. Hmm. Yeah, yes. That's that was definitely a, a a big goal. I think there's there's always been something meditative about the about the games, but like we're not. There's a and I. These are games often that I love, but there's a kind of tradition of mostly match three games, but related bubble games that are very pachinko-y and very kind of flashy and splashy and about a ton of colour and glitter and, and pizzazz. Um, and I love those, but the thing that was always very different about Dots was it was always about this quiet and simplicity and restraint. Um, and so coming in... It was a thing I kind of wanted to capitalize on. Um, and, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to make something really positive. And, I mean, it's only, I mean, you know, this is crazy. We were just talking about, you know, real pieces of documentary work about tragic true stories. And Dots and Co. is just a, it's just a game about connecting dots for points. <laughs> dots for points. Um, but... It's also, I mean, I think the thing I've always tried to take really seriously as a, as a game designer is that I'm, I'm taking away slices of somebody's life. That a human being, a mortal human being, is choosing to spend 10 minutes here or 10 minutes there, or an hour here or five hours there with the thing that I've made. And what am I going to give them back in exchange for those slices of life? And it doesn't need to be anything profound. I mean, a, a bunch of my work has been done and um, silly and hopefully joyful as well as sort of thoughtful and narratively driven. Mm. But it needs to be something worthwhile. And so for this, I, I wanted to make a, a game where for those 10 minutes, only beautiful things happen to you, only... Um, I wanted you... And, you know, it's called Box and Co because we're, we've kind of... Um, emphasize more strongly the character element that was introduced in Two Dots. So there's all these characters that you meet um, as you move through the game and they're always with you. And that was kind of pretty deliberate on my part that I, I wanted you to have this sense of company. I wanted you to have a sense of friendship and camaraderie in the game that there was always someone there with you, responding to what you were doing, ready to help out whenever they could, and give you a little sense of things and backup. That seemed like a nice thing to drop into everybody's day was just the idea that there's this always this person in your pocket who's who's kind of ready to help hmm. um and then i we tried to infuse it we want to keep light it's only a little um you know it's only a little game it's not some big triple a epic but we wanted to infuse it with a kind of real joyful celebration of the world and so you travel through these environments we work with a french illustrator called tom Havemat. Uh, you travel through these, these these kind of different scenes, um, 
as you as you go through the levels. Um, but we deliberately made it. We did a slightly unusual thing in how we handle the perspective and the progression. So you're moving horizontally, and you're moving with kind of a um, side by side, a side on view of the world. So it's a little bit like you're walking through it. We try to kind of give you a sense of sort of really being present in the environment and 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 traveling as you travel through it, a step by step as you go. And then all of those environments are are by specific real places in the world. Um, so it doesn't matter in a game. You don't need to care. It's not important. But I just wanted to give you places. I wanted to. There's so much. There's so many glorious locations in the world. It seemed crazy to invent a bunch of fictional ones. So we're taking you from kind of. <laughs> inspired in from Glacier National Park in Montana to um, an amazing geological feature called the Giant's Causeway off the north mm-hmm. coast of Northern Ireland um, and then we're uh, the bit of a game that we just released is in uh, the Michigan jungle in southwest Mexico and then as well as the, the places being geographically inspired the companions that you meet are also tied to them very specifically. So Catalina, for instance, who's the companion in the in the new uh, world that we just released, she's inspired by a woman called Catalina Trail, uh, who is a Mexican naturalist who, with her husband, discovered the um, hibernation place, the, the mystery hibernation location for monarch butterflies. So you know monarch butterflies do this incredible migration every year that they and they suddenly appear all up the, the west coast of, of America or up the Pacific Northwest and they fly thousands of miles the summer and then turn around and then fly away again. And for years and years and years people knew that they generally went south but they didn't know where they ended up. And so Kathleen and her husband found this overwintering spot, this kind of incredible butterfly grove um, in the late 70s is an incredible natural geographic cover that you can look up of her head to toe in magnificent 1970s denim surrounded by butterflies in this incredible jungle um, and so that's kind of that's kind of how I'm putting the game together is that I'm is that I'm scouting for these incredible people in incredible places and trying to make the game representative of um, as much joyful, beautiful, restorative stuff in the world as I can. And then just just letting it, not making a fuss about it. I just I just want to infuse that stuff into the game. You're never going to need to read about any of this. Um I you know, I just I just wanted the the flavour of that stuff to come through. So we're off there's all kinds of places that we're off to next and and, and other uh, kind of uh human and animal inspirations behind the, the, the people that we'll meet. Um, and then we we kind of carry that through with the sound design. The reason I'm sitting in a full recording studio right now is we have two full-time musicians who work with us who write all the music and all the sound design for the games and record a huge amount of it um, on their own instruments. Um, and so we do a bunch of crazy stuff with the music. We did the, the theme for the game we recorded in Nashville on two-inch tape with, I think, 11 musicians. It's just bonkers. You shouldn't do that, really, um, for a thing that's only a bubble game. 
but we wanted it to, you know, we knew you were going to hear it thousands of times and we wanted it to to mean something. And then we do new scenes for every world that we need, for whole new game music for every uh, world that we do. And then new, and then also new sound effects. So we rewrite and record all of the core sound effects to melodically tie in with the, the new game music for each world that we do. So when you're, every time you connect a dot, you they basically, they, they turn the game into little musical instruments. So every time you, you make a connection, every time you, do, you make any kind of move, everything that you're hearing has has been designed around the music that is the theme for that world. Mm. So we just, I just wanted to, just to try and give you the most back that I could for those 10 minutes that you were going to give me, I think was um, kind of how I approached it. Um, but pretty excitingly, I'd never, I'd never um, made a straight puzzle game before. Um, crazy hard, even even when it's a sequel to an established mechanic, puzzles or puzzle games are utterly, utterly unforgiving. Um, there's not much to hide behind. Um, design has to be really, really clean and really precise. Um, and yeah, I, fa- I find it really um, rewarding actually to get to, to work, you know, I've done all this, <laughs> done all this stuff that the, was much more narrative, much more mixed media, much more um, arguably complex. But it's been just a real, real joy to have a grid of dots, and that's that's my canvas. I have to make those dots as interesting and satisfying and rewarding, and you know, perfectly predictably unpredictable. Um, and it's been real fun getting to do that. Hmm. But I but you've you've are you hang on, let me ask you you've got to promise we've talked a lot about lying, you've got to promise to be honest. I know you, you very kindly have me playing it. Um have you stopped and if you stopped, is it because you're stuck or because you're bored? I did stop, but I don't remember I mean it was I think I was eighty eighty levels in maybe. And I had in the in the spirit of games and honesty, I felt like I was sort of crossing an imaginary line where there was a little more dice rolling than I was looking for. But it took a really long time. There was a... Correct me if I'm wrong, because you know a lot about this this game. Um, probably the most. Uh, but there were a lot of puzzles that were that I really, truly enjoyed. And as as someone who is, like, pretty sensitive to -to free-to-play games, energy mechanics, stuff like that, like, those in general, that's uh, sort of a set of metagame concerns that I struggle to be comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And in spite of all that, I felt like it was a really relaxing and surprisingly cognitive thing. Like anytime I would run into strategic failures or places where the level felt maybe like the difficulty was spiking or that the difficulty was unfair compared to a previous level. I think in a free-to-play game, usually that's when all of my warning signs go up. So I'm like, oh, is this the part where they squeeze you to get your soft currency engagement 
up for the week or whatever, which in a, a game like Candy Crush, which is another uh, game in sort of similar genre that I think actually has like way above average mechanical design, they mm. lay the crunch on super strong. You can be, I don't know, I think you play for like 20 minutes or something like that, and you run into a level that's borderline impossible and then they just don't let you play the game anymore unless you give them money if unless you come back in like two hours or something so they can kind of try you again and places where i thought that was happening were almost always places where i could be thoughtful instead so i could take Mm. a break and i could think about the way all the little parts of the game interact which are all like all the all the sort of new I don't know if they're new for franchise because Dots and Co is the first one I played, but the all the sort of different ways you can fill the grid and all the different consequences for connecting the dots all are thematically related in a really nice way. They have kind of a nature theme and, and the consequences are all really interesting. And, and I felt like up through at least like the first 80 levels, almost every time I would hit a speed bump or a place where I thought, oh, this is where there's, this is where there's, artifice. This is where the business model has necessarily intervened. It was almost always a place where I was being impatient um, Mm. and not really thinking, not, there's a thing as a player and as a game designer, I guess, but, um, you know, I think I play a game differently when I have confidence in the level designer. You know, there's like a weird Mm. faith you can bring, especially if you're, if you work in game design in one form or another, um, and you know, like, oh, okay, uh, there's this game, say, English Country Tune, which is not um, a particularly gorgeous game to look at. It's mostly a lot of blocks loading in Mm -hmm. nothing. And, and it's initially impenetrable. And I think it takes either some luck or it takes a, a faith or confidence in the game's creator, a guy named Stephen Lavelle. Uh, mm. to kind of carry you through and to like trust like, okay, I'm going to bang my head against this, but there's going to be a thing. There's like something at the end of the tunnel. And I feel like every almost every time I hit a speed bump in Dotson Co., if I had the attitude of, oh, these are, these are artful situations that were intentionally designed by a good designer, then I would be patient and I would be thoughtful and I would think about the mechanics and then I would come back to the puzzle and find a way to like I really the different goals that the game gives you or the different sort of win conditions on the puzzles produce naturally through the mechanics these great pressures on the way that you decide to play or at least that was my experience and even as a you know what appears to be a fairly what I think presents itself as a um a, a casual game or a mainstream mobile game or whatever and there was just this really pleasant amount of sort of discovery and like, oh, if I push, if I push the mechanics in this way and I connect these things, then I can produce the goal scenario. And it's not just that I need to get lucky. And yeah, I I, like, I guess at some point I felt like I was, I was struggling to uh, design a new experiment on a level, I guess. We we talk a lot about it's, it's not so much a question of, of, how often a player loses, but but in what manner they lose and, and how that leaves them feeling. Mm-hmm. And so we're definitely always searching for, you know, when I'm playtesting the level, trying to decide whether or not we're we're going to put it in the game, I'm, I, 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 I literally count. I keep track of 
the number of different ideas I have about what am I going to try and do differently this time? Okay, or this time I'm going to try and clear that top left-hand corner first. Okay, that didn't work. Okay, this time I wonder if it's more that I need to get as many companion dots early as I can and get that first companion trigger. Okay, now, okay, so this time I'm just going to worry about squares. I'm just going to try and get squares going. And often there isn't actually a dominant strategy. It isn't that you're trying to crack the code and there's one of these things is going to work. In fact, I would say in, in all cases, actually, there isn't. So the, the, there's always multiple ways to win. Mm. But you feel much more hopefully engaged as you wrestle with the level if you feel like you do have options. Yeah. Uh, and a good level is one where I feel like you have some depth there. You have a, a multiple range of things that you can try. A bad level is where, you know, it's just, it's it's either too open or way too constricted or... or um, you know, you just you can end up in the same situation with multiple bad design choices, where you just you just feel like you're doing the same thing every time. You don't really have any options. So we try and make sure we try and use little design cues and how we put the levels together to to maybe give you some clues, to give you some nudges about what would be a, a useful thing to try. Yeah. Um. And. Uh, we're we're very responsive on Twitter. If at any point you are stuck on a level, uh, with with um, bespoke tips, so um, people can always reach out. But I think it's 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 far more that. I mean, I, I hope I hope we do the the you know every world that we release releases new mechanics and, and new ideas into the game. So that that kind of toolkit, that number of possibilities that you have at your disposal continues to grow. Mm. Um, and I think. I can't say them yet because we're working on it right now, but we're looking at making a, a small but significant change um, to how one of those key components in just right where you are in that game, uh, right where you are in the game at the moment uh, works, but I think we just kind of give a give you more strategic options. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is in the works. It's weird when you're, when you're a public game person, it's like, your big top secret thing is maybe there's a new kind of dot. That's your big, that's your whole big amazing <laughs> secret is there right. might be a different dot, but there might be a different dot. Um, so I think there's there's definitely, you know, we're, we're you know the nice thing about this kind of game is it's a living game. It's continually getting new players coming into it. So we're yeah. always watchful. We're always reevaluating you know every design decision that we've made to make sure that they're all as much fun as we hoped that they would be yeah um and i and i think for us it really is about that this is i mean you mentioned candy crush we're also big respecters of of that game and, and indeed of a bunch of its competitors i think there's some um i think people are sometimes a little bit snobbish or dismissive of those kind of casual games yes. i think they radically underestimate how accomplished they are, top to toe from an engineering perspective, from a game design perspective, um, from a UX perspective. Um, there's a, a, a really, really high caliber of work often that's gone into them. Um, but, 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 but those a match three fundamentally can play itself. The, the, because the matches happen automatically, mm. that's, the, that's the, the big difference in the, in the uh, mechanical structure between um, match threes and, and the, the dots mechanic that we have is that in the the match three you're actually very constrained in the move you the move you can make all you can ever do is swap two dots to, uh, to 
you know, whatever, two candies, two gems. Um, but the fallout from that move can be enormous because you have this really big, big random factor in terms of what falls in and how many other, how long that cascade continues. Yeah. Dot, you have actually much, much more freedom. You have many, many more moves available to you on the board at any one time. So there's much more strategic depth just because of the the way the connections are made. You can you you've got far more choice about how they come together. Um, but then the outcome is more constrained because we don't have these big companies. We do we have some little light touches of that. With you've you've seen the, the little sprite dots, the little plant dot um, yeah. sort of flowers that we have in the, in the Montana world that you're in. But they're only ever a little sprinkle of that. They're well, not even a component of the mechanic. Yeah, like I feel bad. Mm-hmm. I went right into like the like griping about like a specific phase of level design but that's like literally the one thing like it's otherwise so so mechanically interesting and elegant the basic input mechanism of sort of tracing dots and then they go away and then there's the thing where you can sort of trace a bigger loop and it kind of makes these bombs and sometimes that's good and sometimes it isn't like the the very notion that you could be in a game that in a lot of ways looks and feels like a casual game and like a substantial share of the mechanics are not it's not always advantageous to do the maximum thing like there are these long-term consequences for decisions that you make sometimes you want to deliberately make a smaller loop sometimes you need to do this thing over here first in order to produce a situation that is more likely to be more in your favor later uh that you need to actually not do this thing over here that's very good because it's going to cause a cascade that will actually eliminate your next move if you're not careful it's easy to take a lot of elegance in a final product for granted because you're only seeing the clean and simple and compelling output and not the intense amount of sweat and dead ends behind well, and not, and not the mon- yeah not the monstrosities that you made along the way you know <laughs> there were there were many but you know the 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 companion dot system that we have in that game so you, you could collect some of the dots are you have a grid of colored dots some of the dots are triangles sounds confusing but hopefully it isn't when you're looking at it if you collect mm-hmm. the, the triangle dots they charge up your companion getting to the right version of that system was a huge amount of work um, it sounded so simple from from the off, but figuring out what they should be, what they should look like, how they should spawn, how they how you handle the collection animation, how you demonstrate them being connected to companion, all of that. I've been lucky to work with a, a phenomenally talented team here, and it, it kind of stretched everyone to the limit, really, um, because it. It's that thing about having nowhere to hide. You 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 you, you have to get it right, and when you before you get it right, you've just got this thing that isn't fun and doesn't work, and it's very easy to lose faith in it. And you have to just hold your nerve, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. Exactly that thing you said about your your job as a game designer is you fail every day. You just have to keep taking it on the chin and keep pushing through. And then when you arrive at the answer, it seems like it's the place you should have started. But you know that's that's unfortunately not how it works. Um, listen, I am going to have to um, leave you, but I wanted to. Can I just do one one little backtrack because you mentioned Stephen Laval, yeah, uh, and I just wanted to give a little plug for his wonderful puzzle script engine. Have you ever had a look at that? It's so magnificent. 
it's it's a it's a work of absolute genius. A big part of how I ended up here and how I got started was I was prototyping a bunch of puzzle games in Puzzle Script uh, before I came to work here. Um, so a lot of what I was working on when I first uh, joined were prototype projects that, that kind of drew on the work that I've been doing in Puzzle Script. It's such a gorgeous system. You such interesting, weird, fun stuff there. Um, if anyone hasn't checked it out, or if anyone is kind of like excited about making games but not sure of a good place to start, I find it a weirdly fun. It's not really programming, but it starts to help you get your head around that stuff. Um, so yeah, I just I, I I love that project. I love his work. Always happy to have a chance to spread the word about it. Yeah, oh, Puzzle Script is so fantastic. And it just sits in the web browser. You don't have to download anything. You can just go to a website and start making weird things. It's the best. Super good. Margaret, no, thank you so much for taking the time and staying late in a soundproof booth <laughs> to talk about all of your awesome stuff. Uh, no, are you kidding? Thank you so much for asking me. It's, it's been a great joy. Mm-hmm.